Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Proverbs, first chapter, first seven verses. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of of God's word. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge, and discretion to the youth. Let the wise listen and increase in learning, and let the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You may be seated. And may the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you for the many gifts that you have given to us. And now we bless you for the gift of your word and your spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see wonderful things in your word And that our lives might be transformed, that we might become more like Christ, who is the Word of God incarnate. We pray in your triune name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it sure is a delight to be with you this morning. I always enjoy the ride down. My uh, wife and I were chatting just last night. Uh, She has the habit of times of waking up in the middle of the night, and she'll go downstairs and watch television or do Facebook or whatever. And my daughter said that um, she thinks there's a reason for that. We have our, our firstborn was born 27 years ago. We still have one at home. Moms, you know what it's like. There's not a whole lot of time for you. And Annie said, Mom, I think you get up in the middle of the night just because it's time that you can have all by yourself, uh, just for your lonesome and um, do whatever you want, no distractions. Well, I find that riding in a car is like that. So I've already been to church once this morning on my trip down. Uh, I bring my iPod, I plug it in, I listen to uh, some of my favorite uh, gospel music, Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, uh, some country uh, gospel music. And so this is my second church service for the day already. So I enjoy the ride down and I especially enjoy uh, renewing acquaintances with friends uh, here and uh, always a delight to worship with you and to be able to bring God's word to you. Well, you may recall that we actually did over a couple of years a short series on the language of blessing. We talked about what blessing means. We talked about doxologies. We talked about benedictions. And so I'm going to start a new series. I'm going to be bold and presume that I might get invited back at least once or twice more sometime. And uh, so this might take a couple of years to get through. But I'm going to call it uh, Wisdom for Living Well. And this morning we're going to do the first installment in that short series. And uh, we're going to look at wisdom's beginning by looking at the first seven chapters, or at least some of the matter in the first seven chapters, uh, first seven verses of chapter one in the book of Proverbs, wisdom's uh, beginning. Uh, 
Um, we could spend a lot of time in these seven verses. I just want to focus our attention on four things. And as we look at these four things, among other things, it'll give you a good introduction to the whole book of Proverbs, which is probably one of the most frequently read books by Christians. Christians probably read Psalms and Proverbs as much, if not more, than any other books. Plus, we'll get some key insights into God's will for us as he has given us the book of Proverbs as a manual so that we can live well. Wisdom is a gift from God, a gift that he has given us so that we can live well in the world that he has created and in the world that he has redeemed us for. So we're going to begin at the beginning with wisdom's beginning, Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. Let's just look at four things. Number one, verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon. Now, when you read those words, the Proverbs of Solomon, tell me what conclusion you come to almost automatically about who wrote the book of Proverbs. Now, this, this, this might be like a softball, but according to that, who might you think wrote the book of Proverbs? Solomon. That's a natural conclusion to come to, but you're going to guess that that's probably not completely right at least. And when it says the Proverbs of Solomon, it does mean that Solomon wrote some of the Proverbs, uh, but it can't possibly mean that he wrote all of the Proverbs. Let's just take a look at that for a moment. Uh, turn to Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 1, for example. In Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 1, it says, once again, the Proverbs of Solomon. You see, like the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs is made up of collections of wise sayings, collections that were later collected into bigger collections that were then collected into bigger collections until we have the book as a whole. And Proverbs 10, 1 starts one of those collections the Proverbs of Solomon, and it actually goes on until chapter 22, verse 16. And uh, just one interesting thing about this collection, which no doubt used to circulate among God's people all by itself, uh, the ancients didn't have Arabic numbers as we know them. One thing they did for numbers was they used the letters of the alphabet. And so Solomon's name has a numerical value. The first letter of his name is Sheen, and that's 300. The second letter is Lamed, and that is 30. The third letter is a Mem, and that's 40. So where are we by now? 370. And the fourth letter is a He, which is 5. So there are 375 is the numerical value of Solomon's name. Well, this afternoon, if you don't have anything to do, read Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1 through 22:16. Count the Proverbs. If you don't want to take time, just take a wild guess as to how many there are in this collection. 375. A collection of Solomonic Proverbs. I'll flip over to chapter 25 and verse 1. Chapter 25, verse 1 says, These also are Proverbs of Solomon. So here we're getting another collection in the book that was by Solomon. But notice, who copied these Proverbs down? The men of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So these Proverbs probably were circulating in oral form, like a stitch in time saves nine, he who hesitates is lost, hates makes waste, look before you leap. 
Uh, they were probably circulating in oral form for a couple of hundred years until this group of people called the men of Hezekiah wrote them down. So if these weren't written down until the days of Hezekiah, who couldn't possibly have written down everything in the book of Proverbs? Solomon couldn't have. He, he was the author of these uh, Proverbs that we've looked at so far. But, uh, so he's author of some of the Proverbs, no doubt, but not all. Uh, go a little further in the book to Proverbs chapter 30. The words of Agur, son of Yaqah, the oracle. Now, if Agur, we don't know who Agur is, but we know who Agur is not. Who's Agur not? He's not Solomon. And so in the book of Proverbs, we have this section starting in chapter 30, which are the words of Agur, but Agur is not Solomon, so Solomon couldn't possibly have written the whole book. Some of it's not written until the days of Hezekiah. Uh, some of it's the words of Agur. Uh, let's look one more chapter beginning, chapter 31. The words of King Lemuel. Now again, like Agur, we have no idea who King Lemuel is. Uh, but chapter 31 are the words of King Lemuel. And since they're the words of King Lemuel, they can't be the words of Solomon. But even that word of is a funny word. Have you ever stopped to think about how many things of can mean? Uh, the pulpit of wood. What does of mean? Made of. The Bible of Mark. What's that mean? Well, this one's not written by me. Although actually... Um, uh, I did do the translation, some of the translation in the New Living Translation. And one of, at, when my son, third son was in high school, there were some kids with a New Living Translation. Now, Mark knows the difference. Between, he's a linguist. He knows the difference between a translation, being a translator, and being an author. And these kids had a New Living Translation. He said, my dad wrote that Bible. And uh, uh, so... Um, they didn't believe him, so he took him to the list of contributors. And since he's Mark Jr., sure enough, Mark D. Futado. And so his friends think I wrote the Bible. And my daughter, some of her friends also think I wrote the Bible. I didn't really write the Bible, um, in case you were wondering. But at any rate, uh, of can mean a variety of things. Now, these say, this says the words of King Lemuel. So what might you think about the authorship of these words? That they were, that Lemuel authored them, correct? But look what it goes on to say. An oracle his mother taught him. So they are the words of King Lemuel, but he didn't author them. He didn't originate them. He learned them from his mom. And where'd she probably learn them? From her mother. And where'd she learn them? But they become associated for one reason or another with King Lemuel, so they're called the words of King Lemuel, even though King Lemuel did not write them. And so when we go back to chapter 1 and verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, like the words of King Lemuel, it's, it clearly doesn't mean that he wrote everything. And it's even hard at times to know what Solomon did write and what he didn't write, because a proverb could be of Solomon, like a saying could be of Lemuel, but Solomon might have learned them from his mother, who learned them from her mother. So these, this book is the called... In the Bible, the Proverbs of Solomon, he wrote some, maybe many, but he didn't write them all. So why is it called the Proverbs of Solomon? 
Well, remember two stories, one from first Kings chapter three. You'll recall that there were two prostitutes living together and they each had a baby and there was a worst tragedy that you could imagine in the middle of the night. One of the moms rolled over onto one of the babies. They didn't have separate cribs and the baby died in the middle of the night. And, of course, then there was a squabble between the two women over who had the living baby and who had the dead baby. So they came to Solomon. And Solomon says, I've got the solution. We will. This sounds gross, but there was a method to his madness. He said, let's cut the baby in half. You can each have half. And, of course, he knew that the natural mother would much rather have the live baby in the hands of another than to have her baby die. And so Solomon quickly discerned the true mother. You'll recall another story. Uh, there was a queen from another country. Anybody know where she came from? Queen of Sheba. And she took a vacation. Maybe it was over Memorial Day weekend. And um, she went to Israel. And the reason she went to Israel is because she had heard about how wise Solomon was, but she couldn't believe it. Uh, she said, I've heard of it with the hearing of the ear, but I want to go see face to face whether this guy's really as wise as people say he is. Now, when I say Psalms, whose who's, who's name comes to mind immediately? David. When I say wisdom, whose mind comes to Solomon. Just as David is the sweet singer of Israel's psalms, Solomon is the quintessential, he is the best example of a wise man in all of ancient Israel. And so if we're going to have a book that's going to be associated with wisdom, it's natural to call it the, the Proverbs of Solomon. Uh, and so we see the the, the nature of the book, it's a book of great wisdom. Much of it comes from Solomon uh, and much of it comes from other people, but it has that Solomonic wisdom, that Solomonic influence running throughout the pages. So number one, the Proverbs of Solomon, and that verse one really is the title uh, to the entire book. Okay, now we're past the title. Let's look at three more things. Uh, first of all, before we look at that, in, in, I read this morning from the ESV. Uh, probably if you're using an ESV or if you're using an NIV or maybe not with a, an NASB. But you see that there's a little bit of extra white space between verse 1 and verse 2. Any of you see that in your Bible? Okay, you can raise your hand. I won't think you're charismatic or something like that, you know. Okay, now how about you see some extra white space between 6 and 7? Yes? Now, that's there intentionally because these first seven verses are actually broken into three sections. Verse 1 is the title. Verses 2 through 6, which we're now looking at, separated by the white space, they tell us the purpose of the book. And then verse 7, which is all by itself before extra white space once again, that is the theme of the book. So the title, verse 1, 2 through 6, the purpose of the book, and verse 7, the theme. We've looked at the title. Now let's say a couple of things, uh, two things about the, um, the purpose of the book. So number one, Proverbs of Solomon. Number two, in general, 
for gaining wisdom and instruction. What's the, what's the purpose of the book of Proverbs? The beginning of verse 2 tells us, in general, half of the purpose, we're not going to look at the other half, but half of the purpose of Proverbs is to know wisdom and instruction. Purpose of Proverbs, to know wisdom and instruction. So let's take a couple of minutes and just look at those two words. To know wisdom. Okay, we've got to learn a little bit of Hebrew. Uh, everybody say, you got to get that. Watch your neighbor in front of you. It's like Johann Sebastian Bach. Chokma. Chokma. Two syllables. Chokma. Uh, only in Hebrew, we tend to accent on the last syllable. So we say chokma. Everybody say chokma. That's the, that's the basic word for wisdom in the Old Testament. Uh, what is this wisdom? Uh, if I were going to give you just a one-word definition of wisdom, that word would be skill. Ah, see, we think cognitively. We think knowing we think understanding when we think of wisdom, but the fundamental Hebrew idea of wisdom is skill. Uh, in the Old Testament, when they were building the tabernacle, it says God filled certain people with a spirit of chokmah, with a spirit of wisdom, so that they could work with fabric, so that they could work with metal, so that they could work with, with wood. In other words, God gave them skill. Wisdom is skill, but if we're going to expand that a little bit, it's in particular the skill to live well. Hebrew wisdom is the skill to live well. And the book of Proverbs has some very interesting texts later on that help us to understand a little bit more about what this skill to live well means. And here's where it starts. It starts with the skill to survive. The skill to survive. We won't turn there for time's sake, but in Proverbs 30, 24 through 28, there's a fairly well-known section. And it says that there are four things on earth that are small but extremely wise. There are four things that are small but wise. And what these four little creatures all have in common is being small. Physically small, yes, but small in another way. Small in the sense that they are vulnerable. Small in the sense that they are vulnerable. Now, we use the word vulnerable in a couple of different ways. One way we use the word vulnerable is to say, she's not very vulnerable. Give me another word for that that starts with T. R. Transparent. She's not vulnerable. She's not willing to open up and share what is inside. That's one way we use the word vulnerable. Um, men in our culture tend not to be vulnerable. They tend not to open up and share uh, what's inside. My wife knows how I'm feeling before I do. I'll come home and she'll say, what's wrong? And I'll say... Nothing. 
And uh, then after about 10 minutes of talking, I realized, yeah, there is something that's bothering me. Uh, so, but the reason why she's not vulnerable is because she's vulnerable. Uh, the Achilles heel is a point of vulnerability. Vulnerable in the sense that you can be easily what? E- easily hurt. See, and the reason why she's not vulnerable, willing to share what's inside, is because she feels vulnerable, like she could be easily hurt. That's the sense of these four little creatures. They are small. They are vulnerable. They are easily hurt. But they are extremely wise. They have a remarkable skill to survive in spite of their vulnerability. I'll just give you one example. One of those little creatures is called, depending on your translation, the coney or the rock badger. Real cute, bunny-like creature. In ancient Israel, it had a natural predator, the mountain lion. Now, if any of you have ever watched cage fighting, which you probably have not, uh, being good you know, Presbyterian types. Uh, if we were to put the rock, the rock badger, the coney, little bunny-like creature, in the cage with a mountain lion, who's going to win every time? The mountain lion. And yet the text tells us that the rock badger makes its home in the crags. God has put, uh, you know the sticky stuff on the, the post-it notes? These rock badgers have something like that on the pads of their four feet. And in addition, each foot has about 200 muscles in it. So these little conies can go right up the cliff in a way that the rock badger never can. And so in spite of the fact that the rock badger is small, vulnerable, easily hurt, it's remarkably wise in that it has an incredible skill to survive. And that's wisdom. The skill to live well, which starts with the skill to survive. Now, that is a remarkable thing, especially if you are barely surviving. Trust me, there are plenty of people in Joplin, Missouri right now, this Sunday morning, who will be remarkably grateful if they can just survive. Because when you're not at that survival level, when you're below that survival level, that's all you want to do. If I can just survive this situation, I'll be happy. Some of you perhaps have been there before in one way or another. Physically, financially, emotionally. If I can just survive, I'll be happy. That's wisdom. The skill that God gives us to survive, even though in reality we have, we all have, are points of vulnerability, those places where we are easily hurt. But it's interesting the way God has wired us. Once you get into that survival mode and you know that you're surviving, how many of you want to stay there? You said, if I could only survive, I'll be happy. But once you're surviving, you don't want to just... There's a word that rhymes with survive. No, thrive after you're surviving, then you don't want to just survive. You want to thrive. And wisdom is also the skill to thrive. It's the skill to live well first in the sense of the skill to survive, but then in the 
in the sense of the skill to thrive. This is hinted at in our text that we didn't look at, but we've talked about those four little creatures. The last one is the lizard. Lizard that is easily caught with the hand, but the text tells us he lives in king's palaces. Pretty fine accommodations, I would say. Not living under a rock in the desert, but living in king's palaces. Chapter 3 in Proverbs amplifies this idea of surviving. And uh, in a couple of times when I come back, we'll, Lord willing, get to look in more detail in terms of what it means to thrive in life. Just for now, I want you to know that that's wisdom. That God gives you wisdom not only to survive, but to go beyond surviving and to thrive. To thrive in every area of life. Those areas where you feel vulnerable to thrive emotionally, to thrive financially, to thrive physically, to thrive relationally. That's wisdom. It's the skill to live well. The skill to survive. The skill to thrive And the way we survive and thrive is by living in keeping with the order that God has put in the creation that he has made. Because wisdom also refers to that order. Um, If I were to take this Bible and just let go of it, how many of you would bet it's going up? How many bet to the right? How many bet to the left? How many bet down? That's wisdom. God has built the world to work a certain way. And when you live in keeping with the way God has wired the world, whether you've come to understand that through studying the world or through studying the Word, God's the author of both of those books, when you understand the way God has made the world to work and you live in keeping with it, you not only survive, but you thrive. So, for example, there might be access to the roof, If there were and somebody were to go up on the roof after the worship service and decide to step off, would that enhance the quality of their life? No, because they're not living in keeping with with wisdom, with the order that God has put into the world. But as we learn to grow in every area of life and live in keeping with the way God has wired the world, the way he has revealed himself in the world and in the word, we not only... Um, survive, but we go on to thrive. That's wisdom. The skill to live well. Now, what about that second word, instruction? To know wisdom and instruction. Well, that word gets a little bit of amplification in verse 3 when it says in the ESV, to receive instruction in wise dealing. And if some of you are using the NIV, I think it's using the word discipline But the word uh, instruction in the ESV is a better English translation, I believe, at this particular point. The ESV says to receive instruction in wise dealing. What is that wise dealing? Uh, I would say instead of instruction in wise dealing, I would say teaching that results in successful living. Wise dealing is successful living. It's an interesting word. Okay, here's your second word. Uh, this is easier. Uh, two syllables, Haas, you know, like the, uh, the, the big guy on, what was that TV show? Bonanza. Bonanza. Okay, Haas, Kale. Haas, Kale. That's the word that is translated wise dealing. Uh, 
it has an interesting set of meanings. First of all, on one level, hoskel means to pay careful attention. But then it goes on to mean insight. Of course, where would you get the insight? By paying careful attention. And when you put into practice the insights that you gain by paying careful attention, the result is success in living. That's Haskell. To pay attention, to gain insight, and to succeed as a result of that. Hence, teaching that results in successful living. That's why I say that wisdom, in the book of, wisdom, in the book of Proverbs, God is giving you a manual to live well. Because the first thing it tells us it's good for is wisdom, that is, the ability to live well, living in keeping with God's revelation, surviving, thriving in all areas of life, instruction, instruction that results in successful living, because as you pay attention to, the, to God's revelation in the world and to God's revelation in the Word, you gain insight You know not to step off, oh, I did that once and that didn't work, I'm not doing that one again. Uh, And so you, you gain insight from paying attention to God's revelation, and as you put that revelation into practice, the result is a growing success in life. So what have we looked at so far? Number one, Proverbs of Solomon. Number two, for gaining wisdom and instruction. Here's number three. We've looked at, in number two, why the book was written. In number three, we want to look at for whom was the book written. And we get a twofold answer, for the simple and the wise. For the simple and the wise. Look at verse four. To give prudence to the simple. Now, the simple in the book of Proverbs are not mentally deficient. These are not people who have a lower-than-average IQ. This has nothing to do with intellectual acumen. Notice what it goes on to say, knowledge and discretion, to the youth. The word for simple here refers to people who are naive, haven't been around the block a lot. And since they're naive, they're easily led astray, easily deceived, easily led down the wrong path. And you know, in the book of Proverbs, there are two paths that are set before the reader. There's the path of wisdom and righteousness. There's the path of folly and wickedness. The path of wisdom leads to what L word? L-I? Life. And the path of folly leads to what D word? Death. So there are two ways. And the book of Proverbs is written for the simple. Um, our kind of modern analog would be adolescents. They're, they're young. Uh, but this book is not written for uh, three and four and five years olds. Because the, 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 the people in, in, that the book is written for need instruction, for example, in how to handle their sexuality. Well, not a major issue for most kindergartners. How to handle their finances. Again, not a major issue for uh, most first graders. But huge issues for young men in particular, who are the audience of the book, young men in particular, 
who are what we call adolescents, about to enter into adulthood, about to become men on their own, taking their place in society. And in that society, as well as in ours, there are two major issues they've got to learn to deal with. One is their sexuality, and the other is their finances. I have no doubt that if we could survey uh, marital counselors and ask them, Give me the top two things that are issues in marriage relationships. I have no doubt that they're going to say, well, sexuality and money. Uh, And so the book of Proverbs was originally written to train young men as they were about to take their, their place in Israelite culture as males. Now, I don't have time to get into it, but women, it was not originally written for you. But there was another book as a counterpoint that was written for you, and that's called the Song of Solomon. Uh, The Song of Solomon is about sexuality. However, it is clearly written from a female point of view. And what it means for her to be a, a sexual image bearer of God and have to put up with the likes of him. Uh, And in fact, it is so much from a female perspective that there are scholars who think that a woman must have written the Song of Solomon. Because how could a man possibly have gotten into her ancient sandals so well to express so articulately and profoundly how she feels and what she experiences? We'll let that for a a series a couple years down the road. Um, The point being, this book was primarily written for young men. Uh, as they are leaving youth and entering into adulthood, uh, dads, how many of you have said to your sons, learn from my mistakes? Don't do what I did. I see I stepped off the roof. It didn't enhance the quality of my life. Uh, young men in the congregation, your dads, believe it or not, they know a few things. They have been around the block a few times. You would do well to listen to them. I wish I could say they're always right. We're we're humans, we're dads, we're not. But we have gained a lot of wisdom. And our young sons in particular would do well to learn uh, from us as well as from mom, which is why you get at the beginning of the book, my son, listen to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. So the book is primarily for young, naive men. Well, there aren't a lot of those here. There are some. Does that mean the rest of us can get rid of the book? No, because it's also for the wise and discerning. Look at verse 5. Let the wise listen and increase in learning, and let the one who understands obtain guidance. Now, verse 5 is a parenthesis. The book is primarily for young, naive men, a little bit, what do we say, wet behind the ears? Uh, And that's who it's primarily for, but it's also for the wise and discerning. Ancient Israelite Hebrew didn't have parentheses, but if they did, they would have put them around verse 5. How do we know that? Look at the beginning of verse 2. What's the first word in your translation? It's either or. It's either a... Two or it's a four, depending on your translation. First word, two or four. First word in verse three, two or four. First word in verse four, two or four. First word in verse six, uh, verse six, two or four. 
not the first word in verse 5. There's no two or four. That's a Hebrew way of saying, stop a minute, I'm going to throw in a little parenthetical remark. If you are not a young, naive man in need of this training that the book of Proverbs gives, please don't close the book. If you've already been around the block, if you've already gained some wisdom, if you already have some discernment, this book is for you as well. Let the wise hear and increase. There is always more to learn. Tell you a quick story. When I was a young seminary professor, had probably only been teaching a year or so. This was back in the late 1980s. I was teaching in California at an Orthodox Presbyterian uh, family camp up in the mountains. And there was an elderly gentleman that if he wasn't at the founding of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, he was close to being a charter member of the whole denomination, now retired, uh, had forgotten more theology than I knew. And he's sitting in um, my lessons and he's taking notes. And of course, I'm young, I'm a little bit feeling insecure with this elderly statesman there. And so finally, the other shoe drops after about the third lesson. He said, Mark, can I talk to you? And I think, okay, he's going to take me out to the proverbial woodshed over something that I've said. And uh, so as a matter of fact, he said, out there, there's a tree and there's a bench under the tree. Let's go talk. So we go out and we sit down. And this fellow who must have been in his 80s opened up his Bible and his notebook. And he said, you know, I've had a number of questions. And based on things you've said in your lesson, I think you might have some answers for me. You don't know what an impression that made on me. Not only did I go, but I was profoundly impacted. Here was a man who was wise and discerning. And he said in the depths of his soul, there's always more that I can add. And so no matter where you are in your path, there's always more that you need to know. Always more that you can add. And the book of Proverbs is for you. No matter where you are in the journey, there's good stuff. Notice it says, let the discerning, uh, the one who understands, gain guidance doesn't matter how old we are, how young we are. All of us from time to time need some guidance in life, yes or yes. And God has that for you, both in the world and in the Word. And so as we learn more about God's wisdom, we can not only avoid the pitfalls of youth, but we can add to what we already know. We can gain more so that we can live more successfully, so that we can live well to a better level where, no matter where we are along the journey. So ultimately, the book of Proverbs is for whom? It's for everyone. And that means it's for you. So we've looked at the Proverbs of Solomon for gaining wisdom and understanding. Uh, and it's for the wise and the simple. Uh, and now at the very end, verse 7, that theme verse, what is the overall theme of the book of Proverbs? The fear of the Lord. Let's ask two questions about the fear of the Lord. What is it and what role does it play in our lives? First of all, what is the fear of the Lord? Well, in this expression, the fear of the Lord, it's primarily not being afraid of God. Uh, four, four dimensions here. 
first of all, to fear God is to know Him. There are Proverbs like 2.5, 15.33, that will match up the fear of God and the knowledge of God. You can't possibly fear God if you don't know Him. And so the fear of the Lord starts with knowing God as He has revealed Himself to you. But then it goes on. It's not just the same as knowing God. There's another dimension. To fear God is to know Him and then to stand in awe. And some translations now are moving away from the word fear and they're moving more toward words like reverence or awe. But that's the fear of the Lord. It's to know God. And as you grow in your knowledge of God, you grow in standing in awe in His presence. Uh, We sing, Our God is an... You know, back in the day, we used to sing the equivalent of our God is an awful God. You know the old hymn, how sweet and, well, the new hymn, the, the red hymnal probably says how sweet and awesome is the place. But the old word was how sweet and awful is the place. Because what did awful originally mean? Full of awe. And as we grow in our knowledge of God, as he reveals himself in the creation, and as he reveals himself in the scriptures, we more and more stand in awe of him. Exodus chapter 14 says that when God brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea, because Moses lifted his hand and the waters parted and they went through on dry ground, and Moses dropped his hand and the pursuing Israelites were all consumed when the waters came back, it says the people saw the great power of God And they feared the Lord. They stood in awe of the Lord at His great power. Lots I don't understand about God. I sure don't understand tornadoes. I sure don't understand hurricanes. I sure don't understand tsunamis. And I'm not talking about a meteorological perspective. Meteorology is kind of a hobby of mine, and I have somewhat of an understanding of these things from a meteorological point of view. But I'm talking about from a theological point of view. Frankly, I I just don't understand God's ways. And I certainly don't mean to be disrespectful, but have you ever said, if I were God, I don't think I'd do it that way? Well, that's because we're not God. And God's ways are higher than our ways. Uh, And his thoughts are deeper than our thoughts. Uh, But while I don't understand God, one thing is certainly clear. God is a God of great power. And he reveals that power in the creation. It does tell us something about him. He's cloaked in mystery, as R.C. Sproul has often said. If you understood everything about God, either you would be or he wouldn't be. But he's infinite and we're finite. And while there's a lot that we don't understand, there's some things that we do understand very clearly, like God's power. And, uh, and, and we stand in awe of him. So to fear God is to know him and to stand in awe of him, to stand in awe of him and trust him. That Exodus text says when they saw the great power of the Lord, they stood in awe of God and they put their trust in him. Um, Psalm 40, verse 3, says the same thing. Many will see and hear, and they will fear and put their trust in God. This is why the fear of the Lord can't be what we think of as ordinary being afraid of, 
Because if you see somebody walking down the street and you're afraid of them, which direction do you go, to them or away from them? You go away. But with the fear of the Lord, when you see him, you don't go away from him. You're drawn to him. To fear God is to know him. It's to stand in awe of him and to trust him. And in one of the songs we sang, we sang of God being, oh, holy, 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 merciful and mighty. And we trust God to use that great might in a way that is ultimately merciful. And the fourth thing is obey. To to fear the Lord is to, to know him, to stand in awe of him, and to trust him in such a way that you actually put what he says into practice in your day-to-day living. Jonah said, I fear the Lord, but if we looked for evidence, what couldn't we find? Because he was living in Chicago, and God said, go to New York and preach, and he went where? He went to L.A., uh, So he went the exact opposite direction. He said he feared the Lord, but there was no obedience. There are numerous texts which say uh, to fear the Lord is to shun or to turn away from evil. To fear the Lord is to live in keeping with God's revelation in the world and in the word. And when we do that, it results in increased living well. So what does the fear of the Lord mean? To know him, to stand in awe of him, to trust him in such a way that we grow in our obedience to him. One final question. What role does it play? Notice that it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning. We finally get to the word beginning, which is in the title, the beginning of wisdom. What is meant by beginning? Well, it's not beginning like... Do you remember the beginning of kindergarten? Do you remember the, the beginning days in your marriage? Do you remember when you were just beginning your business? That's something that is back there, but it has been left behind. This is not beginning like that. One uh, scholar has said, what the alphabet is to reading, notes to music, And numerals to mathematics, the fear of the Lord is to attaining the revealed knowledge of this book. Before you can read, you've got to learn your letters. But once you learn to read, what can't you forget? Your letters. Uh, I've learned some ancient languages that I haven't used since I've learned them. And so now I can't recognize the letters anymore. So what can I do with those languages? Can't read them. Uh, Now, I'm not talking about playing music um, by ear, but if you're learning a new piece of music, you can't say, well, I learned the notes a long time ago, but I don't need them anymore. You still need the, if you're studying calculus, you can't have forgotten your numbers. In other words, that's the beginning. It's something that you start with, but you got to keep it the whole way along the journey. And the point is, it's the fear of the Lord that what is that is the beginning. It's what you start with and what you have to maintain. You see, the book of Proverbs is not uh, help yourself uh, improve your life manual for just being more successful in marriage. Being, It's not a secular book. It's a profoundly spiritual book. And what is at the very heart of it is your relationship with the Lord. 
What's at the very heart of living well is knowing God. What's at the very heart of living well is standing in awe of God. What's at the very heart of living well is trusting in this God whom you know and in whose presence you are full of awe. Living well at the very heart of it is knowing God, uh, uh, standing in awe of him, trusting him, and living in keeping with what he says because of your relationship, your personal relationship with him. It's not just a matter of putting in your quarter, pulling the lever, and getting a good life to come out of it. It is not impersonal in that way. It is highly personal. It is highly spiritual. It is highly religious. The fear of your relationship with the Lord has to run through every facet of your life if you're truly going to be living well. One final verse, just so that you realize that I do read the New Testament from time to time. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, speaking of God the Father, it says, He, God the Father, is the source of your life. He's the source of your life in Christ. In Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom. Ultimately, the one person who perfectly lived in keeping with God's revelation in the world and in the word is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is wisdom itself. And you, by God's grace, through your faith, have been united to Christ. And in him, you have everything that you need for life and for godliness. He's ultimately the one who has given you the world. He's ultimately the one who has revealed himself in the word. And so keep him, not only at the beginning, but in the middle and all along the way. Keep him at the core of your life and all of these other things, he himself said, will be added to you. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for your revelation in the world and in the word and in particular in the word incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a life of perfect righteousness in our place, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, was raised from the dead so that we can have a right relationship with you, ascended to your right hand where right now he is praying for us that we might grow in wisdom and that we might live well in this world, even as we anticipate the fullness and perfection of that in the world to come, which he is coming to bring. We bless you in his name and pray that your spirit would write this word on our hearts, that we might be more like him, the one who is our true wisdom. And we pray in your triune name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.